What do you think of that idea, Patrick? Can you see yourself being a lawyer? I haven't shared this with anyone, but as I sit in Hanover Courthouse and listen to those lawyers, I often feel I could do what they do. I've gotten to where I can tell when a lawyer loses the jury with his argument or his delivery. Sometimes it's all I can do to keep my mouth shut when they come in the tavern afterwards to discuss the case, wondering why they failed to convince the jury. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. Today we'll bring you Chapter 35 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Happy Christmas, Mr. Henry. So apparently it's Christmas time in 18th century Virginia, which is interesting as this episode is originally being aired the week of Thanksgiving, which is generally considered the beginning of Christmas season. Aye, but don't Thanksgiving deserve its own time then? And not be lumped in with Christmas? Well, yeah, but... But then the beauty of the podcast is that it is timeless. Well, I was just going to say... Indeed, for while this podcast may debut in November, it shall be played any time someone cares to download it. In fact, our earliest episodes are still being downloaded on a fairly regular basis. Exactly. So so that's why we don't talk much about the holidays, then. You might be hearing this in March or January, when there don't be nothing special happening. My birthday's in January. Exactly. So why punctuate the date at all? Because today's chapter pertains to Christmas. Aye, but that don't mean we should be singing Jingle Bells, does it? Well, technically, Jingle Bells isn't actually a Christmas song, simply a 19th century ditty referring to antiquated wintry transportation. And this is why I am so thankful for all of you. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, these are your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. Bonjour, everyone. I say welcome, ladies and gents. Aye, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Max. Max! Oops, my bad. No, no, Max, it's just fine. I mean, as we all know, being thankful isn't just for one day a year. We have things to be thankful for every day, right? I mean, I even feel blessed to have you all with me every week. And? No, no and. No jolly jokes to tag on to that? Aye, lad, what's the punchline? No, I, I mean it. In fact... In appreciation for all of you, after the show, lunch is on me. Uh, it usually is, lad. Indeed, your table manners do leave a bit to be desired, old chap. We uh, can we just use plates and napkins like other people? Oh, and I'm the one with punchlines. Well, occasionally, perhaps. Not very often, really. Aye, keep your day job, lad. And yet, still, I appreciate you all. Not really sure why right this minute, but yes, I'm thankful for you, and so I'm actually making lunch for all of us today. Uh, um, oh, oh, goody. In fact, I pre-recorded the chapter, so Max, all you have to do is mash button number one whenever you're ready to start it, and that way I can spend some time in the kitchen. In fact, I've already got some of it started. Ooh, is that what that smell is? Yep, sure is. So that fragrance is uh, intentional? Of course. And that's lunch, you say? Uh, well, uh, that's far better than I had speculated. 
Indeed, far better. Yeah, in fact, Liz, I'm making something extra special for you. I hope it's no one I know. Nigel! Uh, oh, monsieur, do not go to any trouble. No trouble at all. In fact, I'd better go tend to it right now. I don't want to overcook anything. So, uh, see you guys at lunch. Hi, lad. Uh, okay. Uh, what are we going to do? Oh, dear. What do you suppose he would make? I admit, I I'll eat just about anything, but even a mouse has its limits. I think I'll be able to handle it, as long as it comes with some meat or uh, meat byproducts. What? You do not like tofu or hummus? Uh, no! <laughs> That'd be girly food! I rather like hummus. Of course! You're a girl! Hummus be chick food! Well, it's chickpeas, actually. Same thing! The greater concern, though, is can the old boy cook? Aye, and how polite do we need to be here? Well, as a cat, if I don't care to uh, even come near it... I can play the finicky card. Uh, no offense, I'm just a kitty. You know how we are. <laughs> I say for you, uh, that's brilliant. But what about us veritable garbage cans? Uh, speak for yourself, Mercy. I got me standards, you know. Max, old boy, I've seen things stuck to your fur that you indiscretionately chewed off as if it were a melted candy bar. It were a melted candy bar. Again, that's far better than I had speculated. What I say enough of this, perhaps now would be a good time to... Push the, the button! Hey. Chapter 35 Happy Christmas, Mr. Henry Dandridge Home, near Mount Brilliant, December 20th, 1759 Fresh pine boughs, spiced wassail, Bayberry candles and sumptuous food delighted guests with the magical fragrance of Christmas. Silver platters of Virginia smoked ham, succulent pheasant, roasted vegetables, warm breads, and sweet delicacies filled the bountiful table of this splendid country home belonging to Colonel Nathaniel West Dandridge. Wine filled the crystal goblets, and rum punch filled the silver cups that were frequently raised to offer toasts of glad tidings, good health, and bountiful cheer. The well-off country squire's home was also filled with the finest guest, stemming from Colonel Dandridge's excellent connections. This large landowner was married to the beloved late Governor Spotswood's daughter, Dorothea. The governor's palace in Williamsburg was actually built expressly for Governor Spotswood in appreciation for the fine role he played in governing the colony. Colonel Dandridge was also the uncle of Martha Washington, new bride of the hero of the Monongahela, victorious in the French and Indian War, Colonel George Washington. Everyone wanted to be included on the Dandridge guest list. The festive Dandridge parties were always the highlight of the Christmas season in the upper Piedmont of Hanover County, and John Henry's family was naturally included, as they were counted as neighbors and friends. Musicians filled the long hall with the sounds of the season on pianoforte and violin. Couples bowed and curtsied across from one another as they danced one reel and minuet after another, creating a moving palette of twirling beautiful colors. Chandeliers cast a soft glow over the elegantly dressed ladies in their silk gowns and the dashing gentlemen in their finest satin breeches, coats, and shiny gold-buckled shoes. The men and ladies divided into two rows for the next reel. The first couple was to join hands and dance between the rows of clapping dancers and then take their opposite places at the end of the row. The next couple would do the same and so on until each couple had had a turn and ended up in their same starting position. 
Patrick and Sally clasped hands and danced up the center of the divided rows, having the time of their lives while the other dancers kept time with the music. Onlookers lined the walls, enjoying the lively dancers and whispering about which couples danced the best. Patrick clapped for the couples who followed as he looked around the room. He noticed a tall, skinny, red-haired, freckle-faced young man no more than 17 years old standing off in a corner alone. He looked a bit awkward, and Patrick could tell the young man felt out of place. It was then that Patrick saw someone walk up to the awkward young man and shake his hand. It was a gentleman in a magnificent red cloak. He had seen that cloak before, many years ago. He suddenly realized who it was. It was Mr. Gilliman. While Patrick finished dancing the reel with Sally, Gilliman struck up a conversation with the awkward young man in the corner. "'Good evening to you as well, sir. Uh, my name is Thomas Jefferson,' the young man said. "'I'm pleased to meet you.' A servant came and offered to take Gilliman's cloak. He took it off and handed it to the servant, and caught Patrick's eye. He smiled and lifted a hand in greeting. Patrick returned the smile and the wave. He was eager to talk to this man who had been so kind to him as a child. But he had promised to next play the violin for the audience, so he would make his way over as soon as he could. "'Do you know that young man, Thomas?' Gilliman asked him, pointing to Patrick, who continued to dance around happily with his lovely young wife. Thomas looked over and shook his head. "'I'm afraid I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him. Who is he?' Gilliman smiled. "'His name is Patrick Henry, and he's an extraordinary young man. I highly encourage you to get to know him. I've known him since he was a child. His parents lived nearby, but now he lives by Hanover Courthouse.' "'Oh, really? Where by Hanover Courthouse?' Thomas asked. "'In Hanover Tavern,' Gilliman replied, drawing a perplexed look from the young man. "'Is he, uh—' Thomas whispered, looking around at the other fine guests gathered at the Dandridge party. "'A barkeep?' Gilliman chuckled softly. <laughs> "'Only as a volunteer, to help his father-in-law who owns the tavern. You see, he lost his home to a fire, his tobacco farm failed, and his store is closing soon. Yet look how happy he is.' Thomas looked on as Patrick picked up his fiddle and started stomping his feet. The party guests quickly lined up to dance. Henry's fiery fiddling ignited a whole new level of excitement in the room, and more dancers joined in the fun, laughing with delight. "'One would never know he carries such a burden. He appears not to have a care in the world.' "'The true mark of a man's character,' Gilliman added. Together they watched as Patrick worked the crowd. The people adored him. He made his way over to Gilliman and Thomas, and smiled broadly as he played the last part of his merry jig before them. He ended with a triumphant note, his bow raised high in the air, and the audience cheering wildly behind him. "'Happy Christmas, Mr. Gilliman! How grand to see you here!' Patrick exclaimed over the sound of the delighted crowd. "'The fiddle still plays as good as ever.' "'Happy Christmas, Mr. Henry!' Gilliman replied with a warm smile and a hand to his shoulder. "'Of course it does, especially in the hands of such a first-rate fiddler. <laughs> "'I'm happy to see you as well after all these years, Patrick. "'Through others, I've kept up with your journey. "'Allow me to introduce you to Mr. Thomas Jefferson.' "'Patrick and Thomas each bowed in a respectful gesture. 
"'Sir, I'm honored to make your acquaintance,' Patrick said. Thomas smiled weakly. "'The honor is all mine.' "'I took the liberty of telling Mr. Jefferson here about your life journey to date, Pat,' Gilliman said. "'I'm sorry about your house and recent woes, Mr. Henry,' Thomas said. Patrick smiled and waved him off. "'Every life has trouble of its own. Mine will work out in the Lord's good time.' "'Pat, another dance, please?' came Sally's voice behind him. "'Ah, my lovely bride,' he answered, putting his arm around her waist. "'Sally, I would like you to meet my old friend, Mr. Gilliman, and my new friend, Mr. Jefferson.' "'I'm delighted to meet you, Sally,' Gilliman said, taking her hand and bowing gracefully. She smiled and curtsied to the men. Thomas bowed also, but without the charm of Mr. Gilliman. "'Mrs. Henry?' "'Patrick, might I be permitted to have this next dance with your lovely bride?' Gilliman asked with a smile. "'Of course!' "'Please, sir, she is a splendid dancer,' Patrick consented with a grin. "'Sally, I shall chat with Mr. Jefferson while you and Mr. Gilliman take the floor.' "'Thank you, Mr. Gilliman,' Sally said, taking the older gentleman's arm as he led her away. "'You have a lovely wife, Mr. Henry,' Thomas said as they watched the dancers line up. "'She is my joy and delight,' Patrick answered proudly. "'What about you? Has some fair maiden captured your heart?' Thomas looked to the floor and shook his head. No, I'm afraid I'm not very good with women. I never know the right things to say. Patrick smiled and held up his fiddle. Then speak with music. My uncle once told me to play the fiddle to woo women, and it worked, he said with a wink. Do you play? No, I do not play the violin, Thomas replied stiffly. Then I encourage you to take up the violin. Patrick suggested, mark my words, it will give you an open door and the confidence to entertain and meet the ladies. Thomas smiled. Perhaps I will when I reach Williamsburg. I'm heading there after the Christmas season to attend the College of William and Mary. Splendid! You will no doubt receive a fine education. What course of study do you wish to pursue? Patrick asked. I hope to study law under Mr. George Wythe, once I have completed my primary studies at the college, Thomas replied. Law is a fine profession, finally gaining prominence, Patrick replied, nodding and smiling as Sally and Gilliman twirled near them. I know it requires a great deal of study, but perhaps an even greater skill of oratory. You must be a splendid speaker. Thomas looked to the floor again, clasping his hands in front of him. Honestly, I am not. "'But while I do not possess a great skill for speaking, I do love studying books.' He looked up and held his chin high. "'I cannot live without books.' "'I cannot live without people,' Patrick replied. "'I love to talk with people, to hear what they think, and to understand what moves them, what words move them.' "'You clearly are at ease with people, as is evident even in the few moments I've known you, Mr. Henry.' complimented Thomas, enviously, watching other people smile and nod happily at Patrick as they walked by. And people are at ease with you. Thomas looked over at Patrick's clothes, which were simple and inexpensive, while his own were made from fine blue silk stitched with elaborate gold trim. He wore expensive shoes of quality leather, while Patrick's shoes were dull and well-worn. 
Thomas came from a wealthy family in the western Piedmont region of Albemarle County. His father Peter had begun a life path similar to that of Patrick's father, John Henry. He also started out as a poor land surveyor and then married up, so to speak, both financially and in social status. Peter Jefferson married a Randolph, one of the finest families in Virginia. Unlike John Henry, however, Peter continued to prosper and amassed land and wealth, providing a comfortable lifestyle for his family and the ability to send his eldest son to college. Although seven years his senior, Patrick Henry did not possess what Thomas Jefferson did in terms of worldly treasures. Patrick's manners were not refined like his, but he was courteous, polite, and undeniably charming to everyone he met with his good cheer and witty humor. People were drawn to Patrick like a magnet. Thomas was more reserved and more at ease with mankind in general than he was one-on-one. Patrick Henry, on the other hand, didn't know a stranger. He treated everyone the same, from the poor worker to the elite guests gathered here at the Dandridge home. Patrick Henry had the gift of common touch, an ability to reach the common folks. Gilliman and Sally came up to them, their dance finished. Thank you for a lovely dance, Mr. Gilliman. Now, if you will excuse me, I noticed that my dear friend Elizabeth Strong just arrived, and I wish to go to her. I've learned she is recently engaged to Samuel Crowley. Do you remember, Pat? He came to our wedding with Uncle Langlou and met Elizabeth that day. That's wonderful, Sally. I'm happy for them. Uh, Go to her, and I'll join you in a moment to say hello, promised Patrick. The gentleman bowed in unison as Sally hurried off to see her friend. Gilliman dabbed a handkerchief on his brow, having worked up a bit of a sweat. Patrick, she is a treasure. I'm so very happy for you. And she tells me you are a very proud father of two. Thank you. Yes, can you believe I have two children? Patrick replied. I never imagined I could be so blessed. Gilliman gave him a knowing smile. Well, what have you gentlemen discussed while I was fortunate enough to dance with Mrs. Henry? I was sharing that I'll soon begin my studies at William and Mary, Thomas replied. Mr. Henry and I were discussing our interests. Mine is books, and his are fiddling, dancing, people, and words. Gilliman raised his eyebrows. Ah, yes, the spoken word. The gift of oratory does not belong to everyone. I know you have been privileged to hear one of the greatest orators here in Virginia, Patrick. Yes, Reverend Samuel Davies is the greatest orator I've ever heard, Patrick replied. I am also proud to call him friend. He has been a tremendous help to my family during this hard season. So what do you plan to do next, Patrick? Gilliman asked. I'm not sure, Mr. Gilliman, Patrick answered. Well, if you love words and speaking, I can think of three professions that call for the gift of oratory, Gilliman suggested. Minister, teacher, or lawyer. Patrick thought a moment and shook his head. I do not think I have the ability to fill the pulpit or the professor's chair. I suppose that leaves law, Thomas added flatly. Patrick raised his eyebrows and pursed his lips. Indeed, so it does. If you'll excuse me, I need to give my regards to a family friend who just arrived, Thomas said with a bow. Certainly, Patrick answered, as he and Gilliman nodded courteously. 
"'What do you think of that idea, Patrick?' Gilliman asked when Thomas was gone. "'I know that in addition to your skill with words, you have a remarkable memory, which a lawyer also needs. Can you see yourself being a lawyer?' Patrick smiled. "'I haven't shared this with anyone, but as I sit in Hanover Courthouse and listen to those lawyers, I often feel I could do what they do. I like to anticipate what the reaction of the jury will be. I've gotten to where I can tell when a lawyer loses the jury with his argument or his delivery.' He looked around and whispered to Gilliman, "'Sometimes it's all I can do to keep my mouth shut when they come in the tavern afterwards to discuss the case, wondering why they failed to convince the jury.' "'Ah, you are a good observer, a good listener, as well as a good talker. "'That is a rare combination, my friend,' Gilliman smiled. "'I believe you've found your answer, Patrick. "'Perhaps you will be like Cato, whose words moved Rome itself.' "'Patrick put his hand on Gilliman's shoulder. "'I still have my copy of Plutarch's Parallel Lives that you sent to me. "'Thankfully it was at my father's house,' and not with me in the fire. He sighed. Perhaps I will study law. I need to do something. I've been struggling for seven years to figure out my calling. Seven years. Gilliman leaned in and looked at Patrick with his twinkling blue eyes. Do you know what seven signifies? Seven means complete. Perhaps your struggles are finally coming to an end, Patrick. I have a feeling 1760 could be your turnaround year. Patrick clenched his jaw and fought back the emotion. Mr. Gilliman, you have always been so kind and encouraging to me. Thank you. Gilliman grinned with a twinkle in his eye. I have a special interest in young people, and I believe in investing in lives, for they are the only things that eternally last. "'Indeed,' Patrick replied. "'Still, I don't know how I'd make becoming a lawyer a reality. "'I can't afford law school in London. "'I can't even afford college like Mr. Jefferson. "'And, with my family, I couldn't spend time away "'studying under a lawyer in Williamsburg as can Mr. Jefferson.' "'You can read, can you not?' Gilliman jested. Patrick laughed. <laughs> yes, of course. And you are continually surrounded by lawyers in the courthouse and in the tavern, are you not? Gilliman asked. Young Mr. Jefferson should be so lucky to have the number of lawyers at his disposal as do you. Patrick raised his eyebrows. You're right. I hadn't thought about it in that way. So teach yourself, Gilliman suggested, and don't waste time worrying about what you don't know. Get on with it. Patrick placed his hands on his hips with a growing resolve. I like this idea more and more, Mr. Gilliman. Thank you. Now I suppose I'll need to borrow a couple of books. Liz has already seen to that, Gilliman thought. Pat, come see Elizabeth and Samuel, Sally whispered from behind Gilliman. Will you excuse my husband, Mr. Gilliman? Of course. "'And please give my regards to the happy young couple,' Gilliman replied with a bow and a broad smile. He watched Patrick heartily shake the hand of Samuel Crowley, congratulating him and Elizabeth. The young couple was so happy to soon start their new journey together. 
I have a special interest in Samuel and Elizabeth, too. Mount Brilliant, December 24, 1759 Patrick and Sally were enjoying a wonderful time with his parents at Mount Brilliant. It felt good to come home and for John and Sarah to get to visit with their grandchildren. Patrick saw Thomas Jefferson again at other Christmas gatherings, and the two young men quickly became friends. Upon returning home this afternoon, his mother had given him a package that had arrived. While Sally was bathing the children and getting them ready for bed, Patrick sat in his father's study and opened the package. Inside was a letter. It was from Mr. Gilliman. Dear Patrick, I was pleased to visit with you at the Dandridge home. I believe you have discovered your true calling, and if the Lord has called you to it, he will equip you for it. I encourage you to read the fifth verse of the sixty-fourth psalm. Your seven years of struggle have prepared you for what is to come. Adversity builds manhood. The characteristic of the good or the great man is not that he has been exempted from the evils of life, but that he has surmounted them. The best men always make themselves. Enclosed are some books to help you begin your studies. May they serve you well. Happy Christmas. Your servant, Mr. Gilliman. Patrick smiled and opened the package, pulling out two books. He ran his hand along the soft, leather-bound copy of the English lawyer's 1623 Bible of Common Law, Coke upon Littleton. This book would give him the foundation he needed to study the law, showing him how legal documents were written. He soon would understand how to draw up wills, mortgages, deeds, land grants, pleas, declarations, and any manner of other documents. Also included was a copy of Giles Duncombe's Trials Per Pace, which was the most popular law book in the colonies pertaining to evidence and courtroom procedure. Thank you, Mr. Gilliman, he said softly. He then reached over and picked up his father's holy Bible to look up the passage from Psalms. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. Liz smiled from the shadows as she saw the expression on Patrick's face. The voice in Hanover Tavern would soon be speaking not just to other lawyers, but with them, as one of them. Patrick leaned on the doorframe, holding a brass candle lamp, and watched Sally as she gently tucked John and Patsy into bed. She wore the long, white shift, or simple cotton gown, that she daily wore under her dress. Her hair was pulled back loosely with a ribbon, and a single curl dangled down her cheek. She smiled at their small children nestled together, gently patting the blanket they shared while she hummed a soft lullaby. Patrick quietly walked over and sat on the bed, setting down the candle on the bedside table and stretching out to gaze at his little family. Sally looked over at him and smiled, her dimples showing. How Patrick loved this beautiful woman. His heart thrilled with what he was about to tell her. He hoped she would be excited as well. When the children were sound asleep, she came over and climbed onto the bed, resting her head on his shoulder. She let go a slow breath and whispered, Finally asleep after their happy Christmasing today. 
She yawned and draped her arm across Patrick. I will soon be asleep also. And you, my love? I'm afraid I will not be able to sleep tonight, Patrick answered with a grin. Sally lifted her head and looked at her husband. Why not? I've got some reading to do, explained Patrick. Sally, what if I told you I've decided to study to become a lawyer? Would that please you? Sally's eyes grew wide with delight. Would it please me? Of course it would. But how will you do this? She sat up, and he did as well, taking her hand in his. Mr. Gilliman sent me some law books that I'll start reading tonight, Patrick explained excitedly. I plan to discuss this with Father tomorrow. He will be able to lend me a book or two as well. When we return home, I'll sit in the sessions at Hanover Courthouse, ask the questions I need of the lawyers I serve in the tavern, and come spring, I'll ride to Williamsburg for my examination. I've failed as a farmer and a merchant, but, Sally, this time I think I can succeed. I don't need anything besides a strong mind, so this time there will be no expense for us to get started. My office will be under my hat, so to speak. He looked down and ran his thumbs along her delicate hands. If you believe in me, I know I can do this. I hope to finally make you proud and better provide for you and the children. Sally lifted her hand to cup Patrick's cheek. Oh, my love, she cooed as she raised his gaze to meet hers. You'll be perfect, but you are wrong about one thing, Mr. Henry. Patrick cocked his head to the side with a frown. And what is that, Mrs. Henry? I'm already proud of you, she answered with her irresistible smile. Patrick's eyes welled up, and he happily kissed his bride, who had supported him through everything without fail. He leaned back and gave her an impish grin. Then, Mrs. Henry, I stand corrected. Happy Christmas, Mr. Henry, Sally said. Patrick hugged Sally as his heart filled with expectant hope. Happy Christmas indeed, Mrs. Henry. Oh, so touching. Sally was so supportive and proud of Mon Henry. Indeed, even through so many failures. Uh, which reminds me, announcer chap's lunch should be ready now. I... Now, we don't want to hurt announcer lad's feelings. We, oui, his intentions are to commendable. Uh, neither do we want to, uh, uh, to... To eat something nasty. Right, uh, so then, I say, why don't we head to Jenny's Corner and ask our author extraordinaire Jenny L. Cote what she might do in this uh, tenuous situation. Uh, Miss Jenny? Hey, Nigel. What's on your mind today? Uh, well, I'm more concerned with what could end up on my stomach. Aye. You see, announcer lad be out in the kitchen, making lunch for us all. Well, that sounds nice. Ah, uh, well, on the surface, we, oui. I'm sure he means well, but no one really knows if he can actually uh, cook. Do you think he would make the offer if he didn't know what he was doing? Ah, uh, we are talking announcer chap here. Oh, dear. Hey, gang! Ah, it'll just be a few more minutes. Well, hey, Miss Jenny, uh, care to join us? <laughs> I can't stay long. <laughs> Nonsense. I'll go get another plate. I'll be right back. Oh, great. And there you have it. 
You see, he's trying to show appreciation, but... Oh, uh, wait. What if this be one of his weird jokes, then? And it all tastes funny. Or what if it is not a joke? And, and it, it still, still tastes, tastes funny. And what does he plan to serve Miss Jenny? Hi. Doggy food? Kitty food? Or mousy food? Uh, I think I'm going to be sick. I believe we are all going to be sick. Well, here we are. And uh, Jenny, I hope you don't mind sharing a little bit from everybody else's plate. Look, if there's not enough, I don't have to... I made to... Liz broiled salmon. Only I didn't have enough catnip garnish for both of you. So, Jenny, for yours, I just added a little lemon butter with dill. Um, I hope that's okay. And Max's porterhouse steak is way more than he'll eat. I hope medium rare is okay. Just, you know, make sure you leave him the bone. Well... Since you went to all that trouble... I say, Miss Jenny, uh, I'm perfectly willing to share from my bountiful portions as Um, that's okay, Nigel. I'm on a mouse-free... Ooh, is that peanut butter? Indeed. And chocolate. Well then, huzzah! Huzzah, indeed. Uh, I got it. Uh, hello? Oh, oh, let me put you on speakerphone, then. Who is it? It's Mrs. Announcer, lad. Uh-oh. Hi, lass. Go ahead. Hey, I just want to thank you all for letting me know about the special lunch day at work. I hope everyone enjoys what I made them. What she made? Oh, that's all. Bye-bye. Uh, bye, lass. What she made? Monsieur Announcer, lad? Okay, fine. I got help. Look, are you enjoying it? Well, I... With way beyond. Absolutely. Indeed, quite so. Well, then don't knock it. See how much I appreciate you all? I appreciate you enough to... Enough to phone it in. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> Indeed. See y'all next time. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember... You are loved and you are able.